0: He was in uh, Hiroshima when the nuclear bomb went off. And he saw the flash and he saw this wave of destruction coming toward him. And he sat down and he said, this will not affect me. The next day, when rescue workers were going through the ruins, they found this guy sitting naked, sitting naked there, All his clothes had been incinerated, burned off and blown away. And he was completely intact. Completely intact. Uh, He was obviously uh, revered as a a national treasure uh, in Japan. uh, But it's an example uh, of how doesn't matter what's going on a nuclear bomb is going off uh, you know you're going into you know a dark age uh, a dictatorship and censorship have taken over the land and freedom of speech has been extinguished and you know people are being put in jail for you know not having the right attitudes not enough mm-hmm. social credit uh, like in china uh, mm-hmm. and this doesn't have to affect you
1: Hello, everybody, you're listening to Chatting with Candice. I'm your host, Candice Horbach. Before we get started, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to chattingwithcandice.com. And from there, you can sign up for my Patreon account where you get early access to episodes and bonus content, or you can click that little link that says buy me coffee. Both things help me out a ton. Um, Every dollar really does count. And another simple way that you can support the podcast is simply by sharing it with a buddy, leaving a five-star review and comment. Um, Those things are all tracked and will help me to continue to grow. So this week, I'm really excited to have Dr. Hart join the podcast. He is the founder of BioCybernaut, and you've probably heard me mention BioCybernaut before in the past. It was truly a life-changing experience for me. Um, I'm actually going to be giving away three autographed copies of his book, and if you want a chance to win, all you have to do is be following me on Twitter, um, at Candace Horbach, or at fall in Lovia or you can follow me on Instagram at Candice Horback or at Lovia Longtime. Either account is fine. And when I post the promotional material, you just have to share it with your with your social media following. It's that simple. And I will pick three lucky winners to get a an autographed copy of his book. And I can't overstate it enough. It's truly life-changing material. Also, last note, if you do end up getting a curiosity sparked with BioCyberdot and you decide to book, just let them know that Candace Horback sent you because then it gets me a discount on my future trainings, which is really exciting. I'm actually trying to schedule my Theta One training for hopefully this year. So help me discount on that, please. Um, so without further ado, help me welcome Dr. Hart. So for the listeners, I've talked about biocybernaut a lot and how it has deeply affected me as a person, as a wife. Um, my overall happiness. I just feel lighter. I just completed Alpha 2 um, just a couple of weeks ago. I've experienced profound healing through it. And if you would have told me this years ago, I would have said nonsense. Like there's no way that this is real. Um, but I'm I mean, I'm a walking example. Um can you give a brief description as to what you do at BioCybernaut um, and the technology that you have a patent on?
0: Uh, there are actually multiple patents uh, that cover both the technology and the methodology. We have meth- method patents because it turns out that the amazing results that we get at BioCybernaut are due to what we ca- what might call three pillars. Let me uh, have something to put the pillars on. Okay, one pillar is the patented ergonomic technology. This includes electronic circuits and computer code to run the circuits. The second pillar is the also patented optimized training protocols. For example, we do seven consecutive day trainings. You couldn't get anywhere near the results if you came once a week for seven weeks. Mass practice is more powerful here. And the third pillar is the transformational perspective of the trainer. Uh, this is a type of work that you really can't optimize doing it alone. And part of the reason for this is the ego, uh, which has a vested interest in you not becoming more conscious because the more conscious you become, the less control the ego has of you. And uh, for any control freak, Uh, To lose any aspect of its control over that which or that whom it is controlling is uh, something pretty close to a disaster for the control freak. And so the transformation perspective of the trainer is essential. At the end of each uh, session in the chamber, uh, the trainees, we call them, who are in the training, doing the training, uh, gather in uh, a room with canopied beds where they can sit or lie as they give their report, when an astronaut or biosavannah comes back from a mission, they don't go out for pizza uh, or you know take a jacuzzi. They immediately go into a debriefing, so that all the subtle details of the cool things that they experience get to come out, and that way they're transferred from short-term memory, where ego would quickly make them fade. Uh, they're transferred into long-term memory, and there are witnesses. Uh, to what happened. So the ego uh, has a much harder time of ma- getting people to forget the amazing breakthroughs, the amazing experiences that they've had. Mm-hmm. And so we have three pillars: the patented ergonomic technology, hardware and software, the also patented optimized training protocols, and then the transformational perspective of the trainer, which is an oral transmission. It can't be uh, communicated in a writing or in a video. <clears throat> the trainer candidate actually needs to be with me and go through some trainings uh, and uh, pick up and then it activates their uh, intuition. Uh, I've recently introduced you to uh, one of our trainers and uh, had complimented him on how uh, Initially, when he was first in training with me, and, and we were in the debriefing in the canopy room, he would have what I called zingers, which would be one-liners which would go right to the heart of whatever the resistance was that the trainee was dealing with. And so, this is a, a, a unique skill and a gift, and it is something that is awakened in someone and uh, transmitted uh, in a in an oral trans uh, trans transmission and oral tradition. So that's kind of a, why the the, the biocybernatal training is unique. I mean, things that are patented, nobody else can use or, you know, do, or maybe even know the details about. Mm-hmm. And so the results range across the entire spectrum from dysfunctional to hyperfunctional. People can come in largely dysfunctional and in a week be functioning high and normal if people come in normal uh, in a week, they can go on into hyperfunction. And so the central uh, if, uh, of, of the roughly 7,000 people who've come to do this training, some form of it, there's only one thing that I've found that's common in their motivation. And that is they're all interested in change. Mm -hmm. And so some people want change to get away from bad things, bad thoughts, bad ideas, bad emotions, and others want to acquire or expand good things like creativity, intelligence, uh, motivation, uh, positive thinking, uh, and success in every realm of endeavor in which humans quest for improvement and success. And it's all available uh, by changing the brainwaves. There are so many areas of improvement that not so much now, but in the past uh, people would come to me and they would say, bio-siren, that seems like snake oil because <laughs> you say it benefits people in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. How can one thing have benefits across the whole spectrum of people's lives? And I say, well uh, it does. And uh, it does benefit people across the whole spectrum of everything they do and, and experience in their life. But It does it by really doing only one thing. The bio training improves central nervous system function. Improves central nervous system function. And once that improves, then anything that people use their brains and minds for will show improvement. So you find the source of excellence and happiness, uh, and you teach people how to make more of that, and benefits abound. In so every with the, area of a person's life.
1: So with the benefits, how long do they last? and do you recommend maintenance um, to keep those like your creativity engaged or your IQ and your eQ at that new elevated level, or does it tend to be permanent?
0: Uh, well, uh, the answer is yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, I do recommend that people do additional trainings. Uh, we've discussed previously how in uh, Buddhism there's over 150 attainment levels in consciousness. Some of them are huge steps up and some of them are smaller steps up. Mm-hmm. And at some point I could tell you a story, not now, but later, if you remind me, about an 80 year old Buddhist monk very close to the Dalai Lama who, uh, in a, he had gone to a lab to have his brainwaves measured and some very cool things happen. So um, regarding the attainment levels, well, we can you know come back to that later. Um, but in terms of the improvements that people make, uh, they in fact go across a wide spectrum. And uh, depending on the type of brainwave changes and the amount, these improvements uh, range from large to gigantic. And so it's possible when you change your brainwaves, you change your identity. That's one of the new themes in the Biosubnaut where we're coming out of the closet about some of the mystical sources and the portals to altered states that are available within the training, which in the past we haven't talked much about. Uh, particularly we, for example, uh, there is a brainwave pattern known as the angel pattern, which when I see it, and I ask people, do you see angels or do you talk to beings that other people don't see? They always say yes. And, uh so there are, there are doorways to the transcendent, to the infinite, to the divine that are literally littered along the hallways of bio And, uh, sometimes people will, in the course of their training, happen to open one or more of those doors. And, uh, journey off into ever, ever land, uh, and then come back and have amazing stories. On the other hand, uh, some people are more uh, prosaic in their methods and their goals. Uh, and uh, in the past, we haven't mm, urged them to go uh, beyond their comfort zone. But now mm-hmm. this is changing as the uh, the age is changing uh, to be more open uh, to have more transparency, um, and so we are beginning to to tell people about the portals to alternate realities that are readily available in biohazard trainings.
1: That's one of the, I guess, most profound changes that I've experienced, uh, especially during Alpha One is you've kind of set me on this path of spirituality and just asking questions and spending more time reading and following people in like the mystic world. Um, it actually started with, you know how you have like those giant quartz crystals in each, uh, each room. I think I like selenite. asked you about. There, yes, selenite. Crystal. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Which I was asking are, you like, what crystal is that? And what was the purpose of uh-huh. it?
0: Well, and you just sent me down a rabbit are, hole. Well, yeah, definitely. Alice in Wonderland, Alice went down the rabbit hole and discovered quite an amazing world. One bite <laughs> makes you taller, one bite makes you small. There were white rabbits and mad hatters and hookah-smoking caterpillars sitting on big mushrooms. So, yes, a, a lot of fun <laughs> there.
1: Mm-hmm. So... We had talked about this earlier, but I think it's important what made you make the decision to be so open about the spiritual aspects of the brain training and not just leave it super corporate, not just say this will help you make more money, um this will help you, you know, be more creative. You in almost all of the the days that you show up, you learn like a little bit more on the spiritual side mm-hmm. or a little bit more on the mystical side.
0: Well, that's a wonderful question and it has two entirely different answers. Um, And um, uh, before I go there, I will uh, sort of underline, underscore what you just said, because in the past, um, we would talk openly with people about the IQ boost. Your IQ goes up uh, on average 11.7 points, and this is stable at least a year out, or the creativity, which increases 50%. Or the beneficial personality changes? At one point, um, I'll tell you a couple stories about the personality changes. Uh, it was the early 70s, and I was analyzing data from my doctoral dissertation, where I had given personality, batteries of personality tests before and after the training. And I'd done this both at Carnegie Mellon and in a lab I'd built there, and also in Dr. Joe Camilla's lab at University of Kellegrini. San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Joe Camilla is the scientist who accidentally discovered uh, in the early 60s that people could voluntarily control their own brainwaves if given feedback. And he made the first uh, published report in April of 1962 at the Western Psychological Association meeting. This set off a firestorm of interest uh, in sort of electronic zen. People were very interested in that, but most of them were so ignorant of how to build the technology so that it worked with uh, the alpha rather than against it. An example of working against it. Anytime you have your eyes open, you have lower alpha than if they're closed. So a lot of the early machines had a meter. You had to watch with a needle that would go this way. If it was more alpha, this way it was less or lights that got brighter. If you made more alpha, that's like trying to teach somebody to smile by slapping them. Every time they smile, feedback might be accurate, might be immediate, but it's certainly not aesthetic and effective feedback needs to be all three accurate, immediate, and aesthetic. So when I came into the field, one of my jobs was to sort of clean house, get people to stop using the percent time measure that most were using for feedback and scoring. It's like a rubber ruler. It suffers from gauge variance. And so a lot of the early work was sort of putting the field of uh, brainwave feedback on a scientific stance with accurate and defensible measures and then uh, the it, when I came into the field, ninety percent of all the published studies, because people had gotten really excited. Oh my God, electronics in! Let's do studies. Ninety percent of all the published studies showed that people could not, could not learn to increase their alpha above an eyes closed resting baseline. And I was able to show that there were methodological and technological problems that, if these were fixed, then yes, people could learn. And so I set about to design and build the world's best brainwave filters, and also I built the world's first uh, microcomputerized brainwave feedback and analyzer system. And so with this technology power and what I knew from my own trainings, how to do the trainings, you don't do an hour a day, you know, three times a week, if you're going to really make transformational kinds of changes, has to be profound uh, uh, in mass practice, long days, consecutive days, like like we do at BioCybernet. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, being open about this, uh, came with, um, um, well, penalties. If you, if you're out ahead of the herd, you are vulnerable to getting arrows in your back from people that don't like you or afraid of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, uh, I wanted to do uh, my PhD in, uh, uh, brainwave feedback, uh, in the psych department of Carnegie Uh, Mellon University I was referred to the man who controlled the equipment the electrophysiological lab Dr. Terence W. Barrett and so I went in and just happily you know talked to him about the brainwaves of Satori the superconscious state in yoga or uh, uh, I'm sorry Samadhi and Satori is the superconscious state in Zen and he listened impassively didn't say much Uh, and a couple hours later I get a letter in my university lounge uh, department uh, mailbox permission to use the electrophysiological equipment denied he continued nobody who has an interest in consciousness could possibly be serious about getting a phd in physiological psychology but if you will abandon these Silly ideas of consciousness, and submit yourself to me. I will design a program of research which will lead to a PhD in physiological psychology. That definitely was not, shall we say, supportive or encouraging. Uh, I was aghast. What about academic freedom? Uh, psychology, science of the mind. You can't study consciousness? Oh dear. So I took the letter to the acting uh, dean. The dean of the department uh, school was on sabbatical that year. And the acting dean was Richard Hayes, Dr. Richard Hayes. And he was the only one in the department who was actually studying consciousness. He was a Piagetian following Jean Piaget, the French developmental psychologist, who had identified four different stages of the development of intelligence in children. the remoter stage goes up to about 18 months. Then you have uh, operations and concrete operations. And finally, at age seven, people go into formal operations where, for the first time, they can take the perspective of another person. If you give crayons and a a paper to a six-year-old and ask them, sitting across the table from you, and ask them to draw what you are seeing, they will draw what they see. It's impossible for them to conceive that you might have a different perspective on the world than they do. It's one of the reasons that we don't do this training for children under seven. I can recall, uh, on my seventh birthday, I was walking through the woods near Menominee, Wisconsin, wondering, I wonder if other people see red the same way I do. That is a question that could not occur to a six, five, four, three year old. And so Dr. Hayes took this letter, rolled his eyes. Uh, and the next day, uh, terence barrett's uh dictum was reversed in fact his contract was not renewed uh he wasn't there the next year which all of which earned me the enmity of all of the other physiological psychologists who were rat runners and things like that and so uh they laid in wait they were hostile uh When I did the defense of my dissertation, my advisor, uh, Dr. Jim Korn, scheduled my public defense for a time when the worst of the hostile people were teaching seminars and weren't able to come. They sent hostile questions, which I adroitly answered, uh, and they weren't there to do follow-up hostile questions. So, yes, telling the truth often creates anger in people who are afraid. You will remember from your own training that there's an emotional hierarchy starting at the bottom with apathy, then sadness, depression, then anger, then fear, and then joy. And whatever, say, you're blocking fear, what will show up is anger. You'll express anger. If you're blocking mm-hmm. anger, what will show up is sadness. And so uh, uh, there was one other example about arrows in the bag. Uh, when I won my large federal grant in which I had, written in six-month and 12-month follow-ups, which will be an answer to your question of how long does this last, um, I was elevated on the occurrence of a big three-year grant from NIMH, an R01 grant. Uh, I was elevated from an assistant research psychologist to an assistant professor of medical psychology in the august department of psychiatry. Shortly after this, the department chair decreed there would be an annual retreat. All faculty had to attend and get up on the stage and talk for 10 minutes about the research. So I've been doing, among other things, MMPIs, uh, Minnesota multiphasic personality inventories, kind of like the granddaddy of all personality tests. And, uh, if you could show one of those profiles to a clinical psychologist, they could read that person's beads. It's very accurate. It has three different lie scales. Some scales are corrected either up or down, depending on whether people are trying to fake bad or fake good or just generally maling- malingering. And so for my 10 minute talk in front of the entire psychiatry department, I'm showing slides of the MMPI profile before the training and then seven or eight days later, well, what I was showing were like the clinical scales, anxiety, depression, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychosthenia. Some of the people, because uh, I was selecting, you know, really uh, uh, damaged people using the MMPI first factor, I was getting people who were in the 98th and 99th percentile of schizophrenia, paranoia, anxiety, depression. And a week later they were in the middle of the normal zone. Well, the, No psychiatrist on earth had ever seen that kind of change. And so I'm only halfway through my talk, five minutes in, and two senior bearded members of the department are out of their seats in the auditorium, shaking their fingers, waving their fists angrily shouted me off the stage well you know from the emotional hierarchy the anger they were expressing is because of fear that they weren't willing to acknowledge that this youngest member of the department had a technology that was going to disrupt their august profession they didn't need the drugs they didn't need the uh, on the couch uh, talking all they needed was a week of the what became the bioservon training and so mm-hmm. i as i said i was literally shouted off the stage Talk about academic freedom. So I've had arrows in my back by being a leader, by being out in front. And so uh, even people who are afraid of the unconscious or the beyond conscious, uh, they want more of good things. They want more intelligence. They want more creativity. Mm-hmm. They want more emotional intelligence. that's come on the scene recently. And they also want less anxiety, depression, uh, fear, Uh, hostility. And all of these are available uh, in the BioSemina training according to uh, scientific research that I've conducted at major universities and then published in peer-reviewed, some of them peer-reviewed medical journals. So the science is there to support these sort of uh, standard uh, benefits, getting rid of bad things and getting more good things. And so that's what I would talk about. That's what I would use to introduce people uh, to the training. And then when they would come in and they would have an out-of-body experience or they would see angels, I would say, oh, well, yes, as a matter of fact, and then here are the brainwaves that you're showing and this is why you're, and then the other people in the training, because, you know, we do this in small groups, the other people would recognize that here was like one of them, uh, who had unusual brainwaves and had unusual experiences. And so that's how it would come in and, uh, uh, it seemed safe and it was safe for the people. But as I said, there were two reasons why I've decided to be, uh, or have been compelled to be more open about the portals to the beyond the beyond the uh, methods of uh, transformation that are available in the bio training is one of those reasons is the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, which has changed. And so the, uh, when The hippies came in uh, with psychedelics and altered states of consciousness in the 60s. It freaked out the establishment in such a way that they did everything they could to shut it down. Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary, a Harvard professor, was thrown out of Harvard along with Dr. Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass, because they were doing experiments with psychedelics that freaked people out. Ram Dass went to, uh, Dr. Alpert went to India, found a guru and became Ram Dass, whereas uh, Dr. Leary went around promoting uh, psychedelics and so to silence him uh, someone planted six marijuana seeds in the carpet of the passenger side of his car and based on that they put him in jail for 20 years when he got out he died shortly thereafter so the establishment was not shall we say welcoming to a technology for altered states now i think it really an intriguing shall we say coincidence that in the same year 1962 that lsd became illegal in california in that same year 1962 is when brainwave feedback was announced so one method for altering consciousness was taken away and another one that was perceived to be safer uh, was given now if somebody you know is slipped a thousand micrograms of lsd in their brownie or their you know their coke they will have a profound altered state of experience regardless of whether they want it and there can be a lot of fear whereas in the alpha training you only get as much as you can handle which is the good news but it's also the bad news because you only get as much as you can handle and so if mm-hmm. you're starting to go out of body in the chamber as your alpha is rising if any kind of fear comes up the alpha will be diminished And the experience will be throttled back. And only when you get comfortable with that level of uh, of -of out-of-bodiness will you be able to continue. Other things like um, uh, seeing astral plane beings. I mentioned uh, angel pattern. And there is a pattern that I recognized uh, long ago in my work that when this pattern shows up, and it could be in a grandmother, it could be in a child, or it could be in a U.S. Army Green Beret soldier, uh, when this pattern exists, they will perceive beings that don't have physical form. And uh, uh, it, for many years, uh, usually around day three of the training, people would come out of the chamber and go, man, that was better than my best acid trip. <laughs> it doesn't happen that much anymore. But uh, remember, brainwaves rule. And um, when you change your brainwaves, you change your experience of reality you change your identity and that changes your reality that's one of the new themes that we're now public about because as i said there's been a change in the zeitgeist people as we're going into a new yuga a new age we are um all being under the influence of the benefits of greater openness honesty transparency and so uh it's timely uh There's uh, a story that I told you one time about, possibly an apocryphal story, where uh, two businessmen in business suits come onto a suburban train platform from opposite directions. They meet in the center of the platform and immediately fall into a very deep conversation. Uh, Meaningful, uh, intriguing, trains late. When it arrives, they both, wanting to continue their conversation, step forward, the doors open, and one of them has a horrified look on his face and he pulls back his new acquaintance looking forward to continue the conversation asks well well aren't you coming aren't you taking this train and the guy goes no i'm sorry i'm not taking that train puzzled uh the protagonist in this story you know gets on the train he's got to get downtown he's business meeting and so the train takes off and the very first bridge that it goes over collapses and as all the cars are falling into the abyss He has a moment before impact to wonder, why didn't he tell me? And so I feel an obligation to tell people about the nature of reality that I see all the time when people change their brainwaves, they change their identity, which according to Frederick Dodson in his amazing book, Paralleled Universes of Self, identity and reality are synonymous. Maybe you could take a moment and tell us how, um, uh, as you change your identity, how your reality changed, that would be wonderful. Let's can, can you take the, take the yeah. mic there?
1: So for me, I didn't really know what I was signing up for with alpha one. I <laughs> thought it was going to be a lot more corporate and like, this will just help me more with my business. And that's all I kind of was expecting and Eric knew full well what we were getting into, but he knew that would kind of lure me in. Um, So we get there and I'm immediately hit with forgiveness work. And I'm like, what is this? I'm not forgiving these people. He doesn't know what they've done to me. Um, So it brought to surface a lot of, a lot of anger that had been, you know, just dwelling inside me my entire adult life. Um and I realized I was attached to that anger. Like that was my identity. I was righteous and I anger. would try to yes. And I exactly you you kind of defend it, right? There's a reason mm-hmm. for this and it's, it's good. It's my right and, to be angry. <laughs> and I don't have to change. They have to change. Um and yeah. I I was the person that had a rough childhood. I was the person that had a, a pretty pretty intense mom. Um, I identified as those things. And when you start doing the forgiveness work, you realize you can, like you said, transcend. You can transcend those negative emotions and you can kind of re, like, re-script like your past. And it's not mm-hmm. changing it, but it's just seeing it from a, a different view, like a different vantage point that is beneficial. And I would say the biggest change I was very much one of those people that life was happening to me. There would be something Mm -hmm. bad and be like, of course, this kind of happened. Right. And you see that a lot today, too. Right. And people are capitalizing on this victim mentality and trying to Mm -hmm. to get people in that loop because then you can control that person. It's they're very, um, very malleable when you're like that. So uh, I I broke that identity and became the person that you know, the universe was happening for me. No, no longer oh, things beautiful. were happening to me. I was kind of in mm-hmm. control of my destiny. My health got better. Um, I was wow. told I couldn't have kids, um, for multiple doctors. And, you know, shortly after alpha one, a lot of other things implemented. Like I started my spiritual journey and I started meditating and I was a different person and I got pregnant and my doctor was like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how this happened. we were not supposed to be. It was impossible we according
0: not, to medical doctors. Yes.
1: It was impossible according to medicine and we weren't even trying and it happened. Um, and it was, it's the best thing that's happened. It's improved my marriage by a long shot. I don't think that we would have had this level of communication and bonding because we did Alpha One together and you go Mm -hmm. through all of your dirty laundry together on a fundamental level. Um, so yeah, my identity changed a lot. It, it's no longer being powerless, I think is also a part. Um, part of what I've learned through Alpha 1. It's, you know, if something happens, you can make the best out of it and you can choose to be, I always say, choose to be like the hero or the victim of your story. And I think that Mm -hmm. through your process, you teach people how to be the hero of their story. Um, And that's just with Alpha 1, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm still waiting for Alpha 2 to kind of integrate because that was super recent. It was only a couple weeks ago. And I feel like with your training it's one of those things that takes months and I mean you don't even see the full effects I don't think until even years later because there's such a ripple effect like you might see some changes right you might see Uh that all of a sudden money fell in your lap or you got that promotion or that your relationships improved but that's like the tip of the iceberg Mm -hmm.
0: well uh several things there one I want to talk about the uh, victim uh perspective uh, and also about how uh, your reality changes when you change your identity. Uh, for a number of years, I uh, was working with a philanthropist in Canada who dedicated six million U.S. dollars to scholarships. He sent um, people from his company. Brilliant man. He, with one partner, grew his company from zero to $2 billion in just two years. Very astute businessman. And when he sent people from his company to the training, he saw how much improved they were when they came back, and he announced to my entire science advisory board at our first meeting that he considered the ROI, return on investment, of a Biosubnet training to be 100. So if he sent people for $20,000 to the training, he got back an employee that he valued at $2 million more, an ROI of 100. Mm-hmm. And so as the uh, aboriginals uh, came through, uh, there were uh, many of them who were profoundly uh, disturbed. Uh, the racism in Canada was uh, intense. Aboriginal cultures were destroyed uh, in in large part through what were called the residential schools. Children were ripped away from their parents or grandparents and sent 12 months a year to these schools to be brainwashed. They had signs in the schools kill the Indian to save the man. Now, what they meant was kill the Indian culture to save the person for white culture. Uh, But in fact, Georgina Lightning, a trainee, who is a filmmaker did an amazing film. I recommend it's called older than America, in which she documented that 50% of all the Aboriginal children sent to the residential schools died there. There were mass graves found around the schools. And so tremendous, tremendous victimization of the Aboriginal peoples by the dominant uh, English and French cultures. And so uh, at one point, a member of my science advisory board uh, who was a full professor at the First Nations University, uh, was uh, doing the training. And around day five, um, she broke into tears in, in, in the interview. And, uh, and I said, well, w- what just happened? She said, Oh my God. I realize I'm not a victim. I all of my courses in the university are teaching the aboriginal students how they have been victimized. I'm going to have to throw out my entire syllabus and design a whole new set of courses because I've been teaching these people, these students that they're victims and we're not. So mm-hmm. uh, the changes can be profound and then have ripple effects. These people go off, go back to their lives or universities and they're different. Now, at one point the scholarship sponsor who had eared the ground in the reservations of reserves in the Aboriginal community. He said he was getting evidence that people who just interacted with the people who had done the bio training were showing improvements, And he asked me to design a study to see if that was the case. So I designed a, I said, well, we haven't been collecting any data on that. And so I, I, he asked me to design a study and I designed a two-year study. And, uh, <laughs> typical of this is how he grew his company from zero to two billion dollars in two years he said uh i want the answers by may and this was i don't know like february <laughs> and so uh, i go i'm oh, gonna do this so uh i went back and drawing board and went into the chamber to download the answer and so what i designed was a, a program a survey with many hundreds of questions uh and uh, uh, gave the survey, which could be done online, uh, to the people. But with their permission, I also administered the survey to their family members, to their friendship networks, and those who had jobs, to their coworkers. And to our utter astonishment, we found that there were measurable benefits occurring to people who never did the training, they only interacted as a family member, friend, or a co-worker with somebody who had done the training. So you know the word contagious, how things can Mm -hmm. spread, but it has a negative connotation. So I coined the word protagious instead of contagious. And so we actually have documented evidence that the multiple benefits of the bio training are protagious. And I actually published this paper in a British online journal called EC Psychology and Psychiatry, uh, where we had... Uh, anthropologists, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, ethnologists um, uh, look at the data and they concluded it was obvious that there were benefits showing up to people who only interacted with people who did the training because high consciousness gets on people in the same way that it's wise to avoid people with a low vibration, negative energy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, desirable to hang out around people who have a high energy because you'll begin to pick it up. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. One of the two reasons why I'm now more open about revealing to people the mystical uh, sources of the benefits in the training. Mm -hmm. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you know, being out in front, you get arrows in the back. You know, people who are afraid, you know, they get angry. Um, And so, uh, you know, it's just time to deal with that. And uh, one of the keys has to do with identity. You talked about, you brought up the idea of your identity changing and then your reality changing. I've cited mm-hmm. Frederick Dodson in his book, Parallel Universes of Self, uh, to indicate that when your identity changes, your reality changes. Identity and reality, he says, are synonymous. And the bio training has the ability to enable people to change at a level of identity as Robert Dilt, one of the second tier luminaries of the NLP movement, neuro-linguistic programming, said to me, when he and I met around his new book, I think it was new in 1992, uh, called Changing Beliefs, he said, when you, when you can get people to change their beliefs, then the emotions under that change and the behaviors underlying the emotions change. And uh, you know, I was supportive and encouraging and saying, yeah, that's really wonderful. And I said, here at BioCybernaut, we can assist people in changing at a level of identity. And he, you know, jaw dropped, eyes got big. And uh, he said, the only thing I know that can change a person at a level of identity is a spiritual awakening. And I smiled and I said, Robert, you said it, not me. (laughs) Uh And so people achieve these changes in identity through a spiritual awakening. And I think it's now time to be helpful Uh, more because one the change in the zeitgeist where people are more open to this and we tried it out in the last uh, training where i showed up on day one and explained to people when we showed them the slide on changing identity i then went further and said when you change your identity you change your reality because identity and reality are synonymous and so in the forgiveness process which you remember well um you have your court you have your unimpeachable high beings and judges you bring in the person you're going to forgive and you charge them then you go into feeling the pain and if your alpha drops sufficiently so most of your scores turn white then you can begin the forgiveness the first step is decide to forgive Mm -hmm. second step is look for the good or the gift that came from this painful event Uh, and then you go on walking in their shoes and so on but that step i asked everybody there were five people in the training uh, a group of three and another group of two and um i said how long do you spend in deciding to forgive and everybody said well well just a moment and i said aha i want you to amend that i want you to do this differently in the moment where you decide to forgive maybe you don't know how maybe you're not even a hundred percent ready to forgive you know i you know i'm my right to be angry. That person did such terrible things. So you may not even be fully ready. But when you decide to forgive, we tell people that's the first step. I explained to people in that moment, you are taking on briefly the identity of someone who has forgiven. Mm. Ooh, taking on a new identity. Well, we know that when you change your identity, you change your reality because they're synonymous. And so I asked people to linger in that moment where they decide to forgive and explore what it feels like to be a person who has forgiven. And so, uh, that was our our first salient into, uh, introducing that. The second reason for now being more open and honest about this is that it's the truth. And, uh, uh, yeah, I've gotten a lot of arrows in my back by being out in front. Uh, but at this point, I really don't care because this is what I know to be the truth. This is the truth as I know it. And so in the forgiveness process from all trainings, and I'm, I'm going to be teaching this to all my other trainers, uh, uh, including, um, uh, the one that just came from Germany for two weeks of retraining with me in the decision, in the forgiveness process, that step where you decide to forgive, which most people do in just a moment, I'm now instructing them to recognize that when you decide to forgive in that moment, you have taken on a new identity. And we know that when you change your identity, you change your reality. And so the forgiveness process is extremely powerful. In fact, I could uh, give you uh, uh, several examples. One, uh, because uh, my dear friend and uh, trainer from uh, Germany, Uh, At one point he had a family member come and do the training and this family member uh, forgave a brother who was in a different country. Uh, She had not talked to this brother in seven years. The reason was there had been some wedding and this brother had made a disruption and kind of spoiled the wedding for everyone. So she cut off communication seven years, hadn't talked to him. So, uh, the day after she did her forgiveness on this brother, he contacted her on Facebook. So uh, coincidence? Okay, let me give you another one. We had a married couple, come for Training. The husband was a, a Caucasian-American male, and his wife was a, a Singaporean-Chinese female. And uh, uh, she was showing a lot of anger on her mood scales. And when I dug in to find out the source of the anger was her aunt. Her aunt and her mother were identical twins. They had gotten married on the same day, different men. Uh, They had both given birth to a single girl child just a few days apart. And the the mothers as identical twins were very close and their children, cousins were also very close. Well, sad part of the story was that the mother of the Singaporean Chinese woman Uh, died early so her aunt took her on uh, and raised her along with her own daughter but the aunt was suddenly very mean like she would take the two girls her daughter and her niece clothes shopping and she would only buy clothes for her daughter if the daughter loaned a piece of clothing to her cousin and the mother found out she would severely punish both girls so this was a very very mean aunt Kind of like the Cinderella uh, stepmother kind of story. Mm. So she got away from that family. She got away from Singapore as fast as she could. And now she's living in America with her Caucasian uh, uh, male husband. And um, so when it comes up through digging around the Sigma, she was getting on anger words, this story about the mean aunt, she undertook to forgive the aunt. And she did a very deep and profound forgiveness. Uh, the next day when she came in, she was all aglow because she'd gotten an email of apology, a long email of apology from that aunt. And when they did the calculation, because <laughs> there's a time difference between Sedona and Singapore, when she did the calculation of time, the aunt wrote that letter three hours after she had done the forgiveness. And so wow. this is magical. Now, my my first, uh, my, uh, my, uh, uh, Celtic, te- one of my Celtic teachers was an archdruid, and he said if something happens once it's an event, if something happens twice it's a coincidence, if it happens third time it's a pattern. So let me give you a third story. I have a man in training who had done the Yogananda meditation for 45 years. He had known Yogananda when Yogananda was alive at the Mother Center in Los Angeles. As a young man he'd been a model, he was very handsome uh, and when he would sit and meditate 45 years later, he looked like the perfect Western yogi, perfect posture and you know, bearded and look, looking very saintly. But huh, as we could see with the mood scales inside, he was a deeply embittered, angry old man. And so uh, as I'm quizzing him uh, about the mood scales and while this anger is showing up and he said, well, I'm, I'm angry at my sister. And I said, I didn't know you had a sister. He goes, well, I haven't talked to her for 26 years. Mm-hmm. He had 10 siblings. He was on the outs with every single one of them. He probably knew to the minute when he cut off communication with that sister 26 years ago. So following instructions, he goes and forgives the sister. And the next morning, that sister called him at the hotel. This training center was in California. Sister was 1,000 miles away in Utah. And when he did the forgiveness, she magically, transformationally, transcendently felt a shift in the energy. So she went to her Rolodex, found the last known number for this long gone brother. It was a work number. She called the number and they said, yeah, he still works here, but he's not here. He's in California doing some brain training. And so because she could prove that she was sister, they gave her the hotel number where he was staying and she called the next morning and brother and sister were reunited. So we have there are three examples of the magical transcendent effects of the Biosybernaut forgiveness, and so mm-hmm. the second reason for me to be beginning now, coming out of the closet about the mystical sources of the effectiveness, is that because it's the truth, as I understand it, and why would I withhold the truth from people if they're not ready for it? Well, they're not ready for it, uh, but if they're in the training. And we give them some clues about, well, now, if you open this door, it's going to lead to more than just some good feelings. You're going to enter an entirely new world, like Hermann Hesse's uh, Magic Kingdom. You know Some of the magic doors people don't open in their lifetimes. Well, I want people to have the opportunity to see the doors and then to be able to make an informed decision about whether to open those doors to the transcendent reality that awaits them as soon as they change their identities.
1: Mm -hmm. So I want to get into the practical applications of each brainwave and the mystical, spiritual, magical um, applications. So you have everyone start with alpha. Um, Mm -hmm. Is there a reason why and how would you break that down in real world and spiritual, mystical world?
0: Well, alpha one is like brainwave 101. You don't take a child who doesn't know how to add, subtract, multiply, and divide and try to teach them them calculus or analytic geometry or differential equations. Uh, You don't teach a child who has a 200 word vocabulary um, creative writing. There are some basic skills that need to be acquired uh, in order to, for example, a child that's just learning to crawl, you don't take them on a mountain climbing adventure. Okay, mm-hmm. So there's a, a natural order to things. First, uh, you plant, uh, and then you reap. You don't reap before you plant. And uh, it, just in terms of brainwaves, there's some very practical reasons. Uh, pretty much every human has alpha going all the time. It might be big, it might be small, but it's there pretty much all the time. Uh, the thing is that we have a structure in our brains uh, about uh, intersection of these lines called the thalamus. There's a left and right half of the thalamus. It's so complex, it's often called the brain within the brain. And it has pacemaker cells, tens of thousands of pacemaker cells that run 24-7, generating little bitty alpha waves. Now, the frequencies are, are random. They're not synchronized or coherent. Uh, and the way these tiny little uh, waves get to the surface where we can pick them up is along what are called thalamocortical fibers. And so when we put the electrodes on the head, we're actually uh, over uh, some cortical columns that are connected by these thalamocortical fibers to the pacemaker cells in the thalamus. And depending on if, for example, One is going up and one is going down. They cancel each other. When they both go up and down together, their little voltages add up and you get bigger alpha waves. And so since these generators run 24 seven, I mean, you can be awake, you can be asleep, you can be making love, you can be making dinner, you can be whitewater rafting, you can be skydiving, you'd be meditating. And these generators are always running, always urging the surface of your brain, be an alpha, be an alpha. Now. What Shakespeare might call the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune often get in the way, and the ego uses the hindrances, doubt, drowsiness, distractibility and worry, aversion, any form of ill-will, boredom, and the one I added, forgetfulness, uh, to keep you from going into these high alpha states in which doorways open to transcendent realities. And so but the alpha's always there. There's always something to work with. Whereas mm-hmm. theta, it's binary. It can be there or it cannot be there. Mm. And uh, you can imagine the frustration that you would feel if you're lying there in the theta chairs. And yes, we have people do theta lying back in recliner chairs where with alpha, you want to sit quite upright. Yogananda said, imagine when you're meditating, you have a hook in the middle of your head and your whole body is hung from that hook. So your spine is perfectly straight. But in theta you want to, if you tried to do theta in a sitting posture, when you go into a reasonably large theta state, you lose postural tonus and you could literally fall out of the chair. So we have people lie back in recliner chairs, but even doing that, you might be there for half an hour and nothing is happening. There's no theta happening. Nothing, you know, noteworthy, nothing that runs the feedback tone. And so, um, you, ha- as people do alpha trainings, one of the things that happens is theta increases. This is why the Masamune Alpha One training is like advanced Zen in a week. Uh, a study done in 1966 in Japan by two pillars of the Japanese scientific community, Dr. Uh, Kasamatsu and Dr. Harai, uh, they went to they wanted to measure brainwaves of Zen meditation. So they went to um, Zen masters in both of the traditions, Soto and Rinzai's, like um, Christianity of Protestant Catholic. So they went to Zen masters in the Soto and Rinzai tradition, requesting very, very uh, humbly permission to measure the brainwaves of the monks, permission granted. Then they asked the Zen masters to rate the level of spiritual development of the monks, which they did, beginner, intermediate, and advanced. And what they found immediately was that the higher the rated level of spiritual development, the more alpha in the meditation records. And there were, there were details. In the beginners, which was usually one to six years in Zen as it's practiced in Japan, there was alpha increases at the back of the head. In the intermediate Zen, which was six to 21 years, that alpha spread forward on the head. And then only in the advanced Zen, which nobody in the study was rated advanced by the Zen master who had less than 20 years, uh, 21 years of study, and some of them had uh 40 years uh this is why i say the biosimilar training is like 21 to 40 years of zen in a week uh they had those two things happen alpha started at the back of the head then spread forward but in addition the advanced had two more things happen the frequency of the alpha slowed down a little and theta waves began to be emitted from the frontal locations that exact pattern happens in the biosimilar training i published a paper In 1993, showing that this exact pattern of advanced Zen, which takes 21 to 40 years to develop in Japan, was happening to all of our BioCybernaut Alpha-1 trainees in their first week. So, you know, I began promoting the idea that the BioCybernaut Alpha-1 training was like 21 to 40 years of Zen. Advanced Zen in a week. Okay, so uh, when people do the alpha-1 training, their amount of theta increases, which makes them more likely to be successful in the bio theta training, of which there are 24 levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. If they don't develop that much theta, I sometimes recommend that they do alpha-2 or alpha-3 in order to increase the amount of theta so that there's enough there to work with. Because alpha, everybody has all the time. It might be tiny, but it's there, and we can amplify it, we can turn up the gain, and so there's something to work with. But if there's no theta happening, uh, spending 30 or 45 minutes lying in the chair with nothing happening uh, can Mm -hmm. be kind of discouraging. And so we would never start people uh, with the theta training. Alpha 1 is brainwave 101, and that's where they start. After you do alpha 1, you're eligible to go right on to theta 1 if you want, or you can continue and do some more alpha to get more theta generating in the background. So you have more to work with.
1: Mm -hmm. I noticed a huge improvement in my theta from one to two. I don't think I had any during alpha one. And then with alpha two, it just kept getting stronger and stronger um, and more organized. I was like, this is really cool to see your brain changing (laughs) in real time. Um, Uh It's like the proof is right there. It's tangible and you see it. Um, so, for alpha, that's you hear a lot of flow state and like peak performers. That's all trendy right now. Um, mm-hmm. that's also manifestation, right? If you get into the more spiritual aspects of it, and um, I guess being able to like have these opportunities come to you consciously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then theta is like accessing information. Um, for some people, if like you can if you can get there, what would be like a real world application for Theta?
0: Well, um, you know, in Theta, you have the ability to access the Akashic records. Mm-hmm. Akasha is a Sanskrit word which means primordial substance, and so in Theta, you can pull information out of the source of all information, and then translate it into real world things. We can talk a little about. Thomas Alva Edison, everyone knows him as the inventor of the electric light bulb, but he also had pulled out of the Akashic Records information for more than 1,000 patents. And we can talk about that uh, in a moment. But I also have the brainwaves of a man who grew his company alone from zero to $200 million in two years And he had the brainwave to do that. He had big frontal theta, and he had big occipital alpha. So with the big theta, he could pull information out of the Akashic records. And with the big alpha, he could creatively express that into the real world. And so, oh, okay, this is very cool. He has in one brain the ability to access information not known uh, to others, Uh, And then with the alpha, he has the means to be creative in assembling it into whatever ends he wants to put that information. So, yes, the ability to um, pull information out of the Akashic records is, well, let's talk about Thomas Edison. Um, We know that there are two kinds of theta. There's drowsy theta and there's mystical theta. They actually have different morphologies. Drowsy theta looks like little pointy croquet wickets. And mystical theta looks like slowed down alpha, and it's sinusoidal, unlike drowsy theta. And so Edison had somehow discovered that as he was falling asleep, he would often have brilliant ideas. So he designed his life, kind of a torturous uh, regime. He would only sleep four hours a night and often in two different stretches. So he'd sleep two hours, force himself to wake up, and then later he'd sleep another two hours. So guaranteed he would be drowsy um, during the uh, day. And so his invention method consisted of having a comfortable recliner chair, uh, a notepad with a pencil, pen, and then he would hold in each hand a large steel ball bearing and drape them over the arms of the chair. And then he would, lie back in the chair and try to fall asleep while thinking of something he wanted to invent. Now, when you hit theta, you lose postural tonus. This is where I said, if you tried to do theta sitting up, as you lose postural tonus, you'd literally fall out of the chair. And uh, so when he would hit theta, he would lose his grip and the ball bearings would drop And he had metal pie pans under his hands, so they would drop with a clattering din and wake him up, and he'd grab a pen and write down whatever little bit of information he had pulled out of the Akashic Records with that excursion into Theta. Then he would pick up the ball bearings, lie back in the chair, and go for another dose. And so in this way, he pulled information out of the Akashic Records sufficient to write and win approval for over 1000 patents so it's a very practical application of something that's inherently magical mysterious (laughs) mysterious uh, and wondrous and so the uh, ability to do this empowers people in this world now uh, in terms of manifesting i have found some differences in theta manifesting and alpha manifesting and to uh uh, relay this difference I want to re- re- I want to go to a bible story after the children of Israel had escaped from Egypt and they were wandering in the desert God fed them with manna that would fall from heaven it was nutritious they could pick it up but the thing was that the manna could not be saved it would spoil they had to trust on, in God that God would feed them every day with manna falling from heaven and so only on the day before the Sabbath when they weren't supposed to work could they gather double the amount and it wouldn't spoil and so the idea was that uh, th- it had to be in the moment and with trust well what I've learned in manifesting in alpha is that you 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 manifest you get ideas and you know what to do and then you make implementation in the real world and I've manifested things that have endured uh, for 30 and 40 years where I had manifested them in alpha. Now I uh, am a victim of what's called mad car disease, Uh, not mad cow disease, mad car disease. And uh, I love classic cars, uh, particularly GMs uh, from the sixties. You know, these are not, you know, million dollar Maseratis or things like that. They're like uh, Pontiacs and Buicks and Oldsmobile, things like that. And uh I at one point was fascinated with the Pontiac Grand Prix convertible. They only made it one year, 1967. And so uh I had actually found one, it wasn't the right color. Uh it, it was a blue, but it was a, a sort of a robin's egg blue. And it it really wasn't in the kind of condition that I wanted. And so I was doing a theta training where I, I was actually in the chamber. And, uh, I wanted a midnight blue, uh, Pontiac Grand Prix convertible. And so, uh, I am in my Theta training and, uh, without even really consciously working on it, uh, I saw they, it was, it had hidden headlights. And so I'm in the chamber in the dark lying down and this Pontiac Grand Prix midnight blue drives up and stops with the grill about this far away from my face and i go wow that is so cool and i looked at it and admired it and when the session was over uh, the technician gave me a phone number somebody had called during the session and they had a midnight blue pontiac grand prix convertible 1967 available for sale at some ridiculously low price and it had all the trick features like power vent windows and you know really really cool And so uh, it was my favorite car, and I drove it to the training center almost every day. Then I got busy, and I didn't drive it for about two months. And then something happened, and I don't even remember the details, but it ended up, now it wasn't stolen, so it was some kind of legit transaction, but it ended up being owned by some tall Norwegian American who lived in Grass Valley up in the Sierras in California, And so what I realized was you can manifest very powerfully in very great detail in theta, but it's like manna from heaven, unless you are using it, appreciating it, that it'll go away. You don't need it anymore. Okay, it goes away. It came from nowhere, and it'll go back to nowhere. That's the basis of theta manifestations. Whereas you conceive something in alpha and create it, it's going to be there decades later.
1: That's so interesting. (laughs) yeah you wouldn't because a lot of people don't talk from a scientific standpoint about manifestation it's either super woo woo um or people turn it off but you have the technology and you have had the experiences so it's really interesting to differentiate between the brain waves and manifestation versus just you know read this book the secret and everything you want will happen like they're very different Um, well
0: let's talk about the secret for a moment sure because uh There are seven major mystical rays that come out of the central source. I've studied two of them, one, the Celtic ray, and the other, the Hermetic ray. And I've had deep exposure to the Celtic tradition. Mm -hmm. I've had two thrice masters as teachers. One of them was an archdruid, And I hung out at the periphery of a large, maybe 50 or 100-member Hermetic group for a while. And both of these traditions... The Celtic and the Hermetic tradition understand that to do a work of magic or to manifest requires three things, desire, expectation, and merging. The desire needs to be strong. The expectation needs to be confident because doubt is a killer. So you have mm-hmm. to know that what you're desiring is going to happen. And then you have to merge. Now, uh, the only definition of merging that I ever got out of the Arch Druid was he said, "merging." is when your awareness becomes one with the ground of being. Your awareness becomes one with the ground of being. Now, if you've done it, you go, oh my God, yeah, that's so right on. And if you haven't done it, you go, "Uh, ground of being, uh, what's that? And so most people have heard the expression, let go, let God. And so to a certain extent, Merging is letting go. You've had to gin up the desire, had to be strong. You had to manifest the powerful expectation, confident expectation, but then you have to let it go. And you merge with it all. One way that I hold it is that you upload your individual desire and your individual expectation into the it all, to God, to source. And of course, nothing can resist that. It just happens. And so um, let go, let God. And uh, in the training, we actually teach merging. It comes about naturally. Uh, We explain this to people on day one uh, when we talk about the feedback tones because we tell them to merge with the tones. Well, what's merging? Well, a green and a muddy river come together and you get a muddy green river or you have a flask of nitrogen and a flask of oxygen. You open the petcock and you get a merged mixture of nitrogen and oxygen. And so merging with the tones is particularly easy because the tones come from you. Now, we tell people that most uh, probably all the sounds that you've heard in your life come from out you, outside of you. They're not you. Mm-hmm. The doorbell, a bird, an airplane, a car door slamming, somebody talking, it's not you. And so it's harder to merge with that, but the feedback tones are quintessentially you. It's an aspect of the yeah. Uh, substrates of your consciousness that we take out of you, amplify a hundred thousand times, so that the tiny little brainwaves, just a few millions of a volt, are big enough for our computers to work with. And then we select out of there, like in the spectrum, you know, from uh, infrared to ultraviolet, we select out just the one color, just the alpha waves. And we turn that into beautiful musical sounds that people listen to. And even though it's coming in from outside them, it's coming in through their ears. It's really coming from within them. And so it's already you. It's just an aspect of you that's been externalized and turned into sound, but it's you fundamentally and quintessentially you. And so it's easy to merge with. And the way to do that is, first of all, you want to, you talked about uh, neuroplasticity uh, in order to have any changes in your brain functioning uh, you need feedback and uh, this facilitates the development of new circuits and so we know that feedback is effective to the extent that it's three things accurate immediate and reasonably aesthetic now we don't use as feedback tones the sound of fingernails scratching on a blackboard because that's unpleasant to most people you don't want when you make alpha you don't want to be punished By hearing something unpleasant. So we make beautiful musical sounds for the feedback. flutes and oboes and clarinets and saxophones and organs, things like that. And so you have the positive aspect of the feedback. And we tell people on day one, fall in love with the tones. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that you can do is you can choose what you like. Bill Harris in his last book said that's one of the four things that people have control over, choosing what they like. And so you choose to fall in love with the tones and then you become the tones. You feel that you and the tones are one or the tones are pouring through you or you're swimming in a sea of tones. All of these serve to have you merge with the tones. And once you learn merging with something that's externalized you, then it becomes much easier to practice that skill of merging on things that are not you. And that makes you a magician because you now have the three elements, desire, confidence, and expectation, and merging. And so people come out of the training and they have actually graduated from a school for Jedi Knights or a school for magicians. And it's not like you said, it wasn't why you showed up at Mm Bioshebna. You wanted practical real world benefits. And then you find out that, Oh, well those practical benefits actually are the result of mystical, magical, transcendent things that you sort of stumble into doing as you go through the procedures that I've set up for people to go through. It's mm-hmm. like you would find a hard time crossing a river without getting wet. So it's a hard time going through a bio session without opening a door to the magical worlds. Mm-hmm.
1: And so with merging, um, I had someone on when I first started the podcast, she's um, like a clairvoyant medium person, and she got into what she calls like sex magic. So, is that similar with merging? Because I've heard when you're trying to manifest, especially if you're maybe not as skilled when it comes to to that idea of merging or becoming like outside of yourself, um, that that's like a good application. Is like when you are with your partner to manifest together.
0: That is a really beautiful question. It turns out, in the late 1880s, there were two famous German sex magicians who used the experience of orgasm to uh, create the merging to activate whatever the desire and the expectation was. Now, <clears throat> it's harder, impossible during orgasm to um, you know have logical analytical uh kinds of uh, thinking it's a transcendent moment and oh by the way it's a very high alpha moment even people who don't have much alpha during orgasm when they let go of the identity that they normally carry around almost like a self-imposed cage when they let go of that in order to have an orgasm the alpha surges in the same way that um in um uh, for example voodoo uh One of the methods in in voodoo, you have the voodoo priest or priestess, uh, and they have a bunch of followers, and there's some intent they have. Maybe it's a good intent, maybe it's a bad intent. Uh, And uh, they all, they develop, they generate, maybe they do dancing or drumming or chanting to build up the desire and the expectation. And then at a certain moment, the voodoo priest or priestess cuts the head off a chicken, and everybody goes into shock like, (laughs) for a moment. And the voodoo priest or priestess gathers that energy, which is the contact with the unmanifest and applies it to uh, manifesting the, whatever it is, the intention was, well, Mm. you don't have to cut a chicken's head off. All you have to do is have an orgasm. And so (laughs) an orgasm without a conscious plan for what you want that state of consciousness to achieve for you, at some level is a waste. It's like, Mm going to a five star restaurant and ordering a full meal and only eating the salad. I mean, yeah, it's a great mm-hmm. salad, but what about the entree and you know the dessert and you know. And so uh, orgasms can be more e- efficacious in achieving your life goals than most people realize. But it's an mm-hmm. understanding that desire expectation and merging And as I said, I I don't know the names, but I I remember reading about two German sex magicians who were popular in the late 1880s. And uh, they used sex magic because the orgasm is a way to break through, break out of the logical analytical cage that most people live in and have Mm -hmm. a moment of merging with the divine, with the transcendent.
1: Very cool stuff. So. I wanted to, we talked a little bit about it in the beginning. Um, It's the idea of changing your identity and Mm -hmm. neuroplasticity. And there's a lot of science, um, mainstream science, that says there are certain things like your personality is set in stone by five um, or that there are certain things that are incurable. So for specifically um, antisocial tendencies or disorders so the main science is saying if you're a sociopath that's a forever thing if you're a narcissist that's a forever thing um I had recently had Dr. Deborah Soan, who is a neuroscientist that's done a lot of um, research with paraphilias and sex research and that sort of thing. And she was explaining in her research that things like pedophilia, for example, are biological. You're born with the specific brain that leads to these um, these desires. So with these very Dark and almost like per, like a death sentence, right in today's science as we know it. With your training, are you able to change the brain on that level? Like can you take a brain um, of a psychopath and change it? Can you take the brain of someone who is um, born into a pedophile and change it? Um, have you had any of those like really, intense types of personalities come through the door and walk out differently.
0: Absolutely. And uh, that's a yes. Uh, a couple of things. Um, we earlier talked about the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, the mm-hmm. granddaddy of all uh, personality tests, which has eight clinical scales, depression, anxiety, paranoia, schizophrenia, psychasthenia, uh, mania, Psychopathic deviancy, uh, masculinity, femininity. And remember that brainwaves rule. You change your brainwaves, you change your identity. You change Mm -hmm. your identity, you change your reality because identity and reality are synonymous. Uh, And I told you how, when I was asked to speak about my research to the entire psychiatry faculty of UCSF, that, and I was showing them personality profiles, MMPI profiles from before and after the training, seven or eight days apart, it mm-hmm. frightened them so that two of the senior members of the department jumped out of their seats and started shaking their fists and waving their fingers, shouted me off the stage, because they had never seen and they were afraid of seeing a means, my technology, that could profoundly alter personality. Now, we have to be careful because you have have I ever done this? Well, what I do is I you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. What mm-hmm. I do is I provide the technology, I provide the uh, training methods, I provide the coaching, but it's up to the people to change themselves. Uh, the uh, you know if you stand in front of a mirror, the mirror does not force you to smile or frown. If you are an actor or an actress and you want to practice your smile or frown for a particular part, a mirror is a perfect feedback device because it's accurate and immediate. And so you mm-hmm. pull the muscles of your face and a smile or frown occurs. And so using the feedback, accurate and immediate, you can learn how to pull the muscles in your face to produce exactly the type of smile or the type of frown or grimace that you need for this role. And so one time early in my career, I was in the Camilla lab and I was training a group of uh, 20 students from San Francisco State. And it was fairly primitive. I mean, the now the wires are mostly hidden and uh but everything was like exposed all the technology and the wires and this college student was there and he looked he was all impressed oh my god look at all this technology and then he sat down in the chamber and he said okay do it to me (laughs) (laughs) and i just laughed because i I can't do anything to you i put you in an environment where you have feedback which is accurate and immediate and reasonably aesthetic i hope and um It's up to you now to try things and then see what happens. Now, I'll tell you a story here related to that. Uh, I was in Canada working with uh, the uh, scholarship sponsor who not only sent people from his company, but he uh, put up $6 million and sent over 200 Canadian Aboriginal people into the training. Well, one of these was uh, was a high shaman in the Cree nation. And if he was awake, he was praying in Cree either out loud or you know silently and uh, as I said, many of the Aboriginal people uh, had been h- horrifically abused they had post traumatic stress disorder worse than many returning war veterans because of the cultural uh, abuse uh, mm-hmm. uh, that they had endured, partly because of the residential schools and he hated white people and he hated especially white people in. White jackets, because they represented the worst of white authority. Now, he was on scholarship, and so he was at one level polite, but he was baiting me. And he was going, oh, you know, you white people, you're all the products of incest. And I go, well, what do you mean? He said, well, according to you white people's beliefs, the first man and woman were Adam and Eve, and they had children. Well, how did their children have children? Aha, you see, you're the products of incest. Children having sex with their brothers and sisters. And he said that was not true for us First Nations people because you see, the first native people mated with aliens. Now, instead of going, Oh, that's nonsense. I went and go, Well, you know, Drumlow talks about how the two ET species, the Nephilim and the Hathor were involved in early genetic experiments. And genetic engineering with proto-humans to bring us into a larger and fuller and wider consciousness more quickly than evolution alone might do. So I could understand how maybe some of your early first nations people might have mated with these aliens. And he goes, Hmm, he wasn't getting the fight, the pushback that he was looking for. He wanted to like make me wrong and make me the product of incest, put me down. And I wasn't having any of it. I was like buying into his belief system, actually supporting and encouraging and providing information that he hadn't heard before. And so it changed the relationship. Now we kind of had a truce. It was not this like jabbing all the time. So remember if he's awake, he's praying either out loud or in his mind. So on the third day of his training, we're in the canopy room and he's telling me about his session. He said, you know, dog, There were certain parts of my prayer today where the tones were louder. And I go, oh my God, that's absolutely amazing because you know when there's something that you can do or not do that makes the tones louder, you're well on your way to mastery and control. So we sort of basked in that praise and acknowledgement for a while. And then I said, well, could you tell me what was the difference in your prayer when the tones were louder? And he goes, very good question." He closes his eyes, and he goes to think about it, and he says, well, well, Doc, when the tones were louder, I had more authenticity in my prayer, and I fell closer to Creator. Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, boy, this is wonderful. Now, we probably don't want to tell the CEO of this company who's coming next week for training about that, but between you and me, that's wonderful. And so uh, we basked in that for a while. Uh, closer to creator in those portions of the prayer where the tones were louder and more authenticity. So we basked in that for a while. And then I go, okay, uh, now I have a challenge for you. He goes, what's that doc? I said, tomorrow I would like you to bring, if you can bring that greater authenticity in your prayer and the greater closeness to creator into those parts of your prayer that didn't have it today. And he's. Mm. Jaw dropped, his eyes get big, and he goes, how is it that a white man can make me a better shaman? (laughs) And so depending on your brainwaves, you will have the experience of oneness. You'll be closer to creator. You'll feel more authenticity. The man who uh, owns the building in Germany, where I have my uh, German training center, is a personal growth uh, leader. He runs uh, personal growth training programs. He was uh, one of Drunvlo's teachers in the School of Remembering. And when he came to California to do the training, on the third day of his training, he said, would you bring this training to Europe? And I said, show me the building. And he said, well, I have a big house in Amsterdam, which is big enough for the whole training center. We had 6,000 square feet, plus rooms for the people to stay. And I said, I know Holland. It's called the Low Country." I said, what's the elevation of this house? And he goes, five meters below sea level. (laughs) At the time, I believed in global warming. I know Mm. now that we're actually going into a grand solar minimum. It's going to get colder. But I was worried, you know, if you melt all the ice on Greenland, the oceans go up 20 feet. And you melt other ice. And, you know, pretty soon, if you're five meters below sea level and you're protected by dikes, uh, I didn't want to be flooded. So I said, no. He said, okay, well, I'll set the intention in my training that I'm going to sell my house and buy another house. So he does that. He gets back to Germany and uh, he gets back to Amsterdam. And he's got 10 messages on his answering machine from some guy who wants to buy his house. And so he's busy. He's just back. He's got to catch up. He doesn't respond. The next day, the the guy calls again and uh, leaves more messages. He isn't taking them yet. He's not there. So he calls his realtor and says, well, what should I ask for this house? And the realtor gives him a figure X. And so the third day he's back, the guy calls again, they connect. And the guy offers him three times X. So he sells the house. Two months later, the real estate market collapsed. But now he has this big pocket full of euros and he's wandering around Europe. And um, he buys this farmhouse. And the bio training center is now built into what used to be the stable of that farmhouse all renovated and you know nice wood and everything but um he said of the training that he rewrote all of his courses after his alpha one training because he said he felt more authenticity and he realized he wasn't teaching wasn't expressing authenticity and he goes how is it that a machine could make me more authentic (laughs) and so and so Many, many wonderful stories of the magic that happens in the bio 7 trainings. There is one other uh, question that you asked that I hadn't fully answered. And it was about the longevity of the results. Well, for Mm -hmm. example, we know that the average increase in IQ is 11.7 points. And we've also done tests to show that that increase is stable at least a year out. We haven't tested beyond a year, but there's no diminishment of the IQ gain for at least a year after the training now Mm -hmm. when i wrote uh the federal grant which was entitled anxiety and aging i built in six-month follow-ups and 12-month follow-ups because i was keen to know like uh, you know a few of the psychiatrists at ucsf who were open said well these are amazing results but but are do they last i mean i've never seen this kind of change and, and certainly not that quickly. I've never seen somebody go from 98th percentile in schizophrenia or paranoia and then be in the middle of the normal zone ever. And certainly not in a week. But, but does it last? I didn't know. And so I designed this study uh, so that we would have, of course, two pre and one post uh, personality test batteries. But then again at six months and again at 12 months later. And to our utter astonishment, when people came back at six months, their personality profile results were better than they were in the day or two right after the training, which was way better than they were before the training. And so while we're scratching our heads trying to figure out how this was possible, another six months go by, we bring them back for their 12 month follow-up and there are further improvements. So, you know, I have to like come up with some kind of understanding of why this could be. And what I realized I didn't know yet at that time about, When you change your identity, you change your reality. Uh, But I did know that when you fundamentally perceive the world more accurately, that world will change. And Mm. I came up with an analogy or the metaphor. Let's say you're born colorblind, and all your life you've seen black and white and shades of gray. That's it. Never saw a yellow, a red, a rose, uh, you know, a green. And so then something happens. Maybe you go to Lourdes and you put the sacred water in your eyes, or you have a miracle surgery, or you struck by lightning i mean i don't know what the change uh, uh, cause is but now you see colors well every flower and every sunset is going to be just amazing for months the novelty of it is going to be you know bring bliss but it's also going to change the way you live your life used to be when you went food shopping you bought a can of this and a box of that but now you're drawn by the colors of the fresh fruits and vegetables and you buy and eat a healthier, more organic diet. And so your internal biochemistry starts to change, or you go to the closet to get dressed instead of putting on garish, uh, clashing colors because some people to like, Oh, that guy's weird. Or that girl is certainly not, you know, with it. Now that one change how you assemble your wardrobe each day, uh, changes the social networks that you have available to you. And so your circle of friends grows, expands, you have new social opportunities. And so when people in the alpha training fundamentally perceive reality more accurately, it changes everything about the way they live their lives. And that is ongoing. And that Mm -hmm. helps to explain why people's personality profiles are better after the training than before and better at six months after than right before and better at 12 months than six months.
1: I'm going to have to take that uh, test again in a few months just to compare it to my exiting test. Well, one
0: thing that we noticed, like with the Aboriginals, the scholarship sponsor recognized that the degree of trauma in the Aboriginal people was so great that he offered to pay not just for their Alpha 1 but for their Alpha 2 and for their Alpha 3. He also Mm -hmm. had me count mercury fillings, and he would pay to have the mercury fillings taken out and replaced with something that wasn't as toxic. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was very, very uh, caring and, and, and loving uh, toward those people. And so we administered the same battery of personality tests to people before and after their alpha one, before and after their alpha two, and before and after their alpha three. Now, most personality tests are designed to detect degrees of dysfunction. There are a lot of popular tests out there that uh, measure bliss or transcendence or, even happiness is the psychaps psychology of happiness but so what we found was that the bad things would go down when they came back they didn't have as much of the bad things so the bad things would go down further and then when they came back for their alpha 3 the bad things would be very 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 minimal but they would go down so the amount of reduction of the bad things in the training was less but that was because they were coming back with fewer bad things mm-hmm. and so Uh, There are some scales like friendly and clear thinking, uh, you know, that continue to go up. uh, And so uh, the testing of people before and after is an important dimension. As I mentioned, the MMPI has three lie scales, one to detect faking bad, another to detect faking good, and another just general not telling the truth sort of randomly. And some of the clinical scales, about half of them are corrected based on the lie scales. And mm. so uh, the test of EQ that we give is pretty simplistic by comparison. has no, um, no lie scales. And sometimes people, rarely, but occasionally people will come in and have such an unrealistic view of how good they are and self-understanding or understanding others, that they rate themselves unreasonably and inaccurately high. And then after spending a week of learning the reality of where they are with their self-understanding or their understanding of other people's emotions, they actually score lower. I can give you a personal example. When I was a first-year grad student in psychology, one of the second-year grad students was doing research on something called T groups. T stood for training. So about 150 people, me one of them, gathered in a big convention center on a Friday evening to stay until Sunday late afternoon and we broke into two groups of 75 and we first thing we did was we rated ourselves on how open we thought we were on a scale of 0 to 100 and I got well you know I'm pretty open I'm here doing this work and 60 percent. okay so then I spent the whole week opening and opening weekend opening and opening and at the end of the week I was many times more open than I was when I started but the grad student gave me the same test on a scale of zero to a hundred openness, where are you? And I go, well, I'm way more open than I was at the start, but now I know that the openness dimension is so much vaster than I understood. So on a scale of one to a hundred, I could only give myself a 40 Mm. and I was the only person out of the 150 who um, rated myself lower in openness after. And so he came to me, he said, uh, you you know, didn't you like the weekend? I thought, Oh, it was fabulous. He goes, well, why did you rate yourself lower? And I gave him this explanation because I recognized openness was a bigger dimension. And so on a scale of zero to 100, you didn't give me an option to change the scale. I was now a 40. And he said, Oh, that's too sophisticated an understanding. And he threw my data out. (laughs) So it is the case on on some occasions of people come in with lost in self delusion about how good they are at reading other people's emotions or their own. Um, that they score unrealistically high. And then after some truth telling and some honesty are revealed about how open they really are uh, and how good they are at reading other people's emotions, they could score themselves lower, even though they have enhanced these skills.
1: Mm -hmm. So with that, there seems to be like a level of self-awareness that you gain after the training and even though, like you said, you might be scoring lower in some areas, it's just that you're more aware of the possibilities and where you can mm-hmm. kind of grow too. Have mm-hmm. you? Do you know who Jamie Wheel is?
0: Yes, I, I think he, we, he and I have, he uh, uh, he worked with the another guy, uh, Stephen Kotler. Yes, exactly. And and mm-hmm. I've actually spoken on the phone with Jamie.
1: Okay, so have you seen his recent? talks and articles on the spiritual ego and how he's talking about how because so many people, especially in Silicon Valley are m- kind of recreationally and, n- and um, frequently doing psychedelics. Microdosia. Leave. Yes. Yeah. And even full, full journeys even, and they leave these experiences with an inflated ego uh-huh. and it's actually bigger than prior to um to these trips and Mm -hmm. I was curious if you if any of your students have that same kind of hiccup because it's kind of a paradox so you go into this this journey or um this path of enlightenment to get rid of the ego and then you end up with a bigger one so is that something that you think is strictly for psychedelics or maybe because it's not in the right settings or do you think that that can happen with the training as well
0: a beautiful question. Um, often lacking in those journeys is a trainer or guide. Now, bioscibionaut trainers go through not only uh, multiple brainwave trainings themselves, but there's a two month training of the trainer process where they uh, are at my side during. Um, two months worth of trainings and so in any personal growth the ego is the obstacle uh and uh works to undermine the growth and uh psychedelics can give you a, a glimpse or even you know a flood of of insights but if it's not embedded in a proper training protocol It can actually, as you said, make it worse, a spiritual ego. And, you know, there has been some comment about the leaders of the tech companies and social media companies in California engaging in, shall we say, anti-democratic censorship and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so this is not something that you do when you are even going in the direction of enlightened being. You don't shut off uh, points of view that, you know, you don't like or disagree with. So uh, I can tell you a story that will illustrate uh, the problem and the solution. In the history of my career, there have been periods as long as eight or nine months where I did not have my technology set up. Maybe the lab was moving or, you know, I was uh, going into a new state or something like that. And did move the training center to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina at one point, or moved it around different places in the San Francisco Bay area. And, I would get calls from people whose friends had done the training or family and they were desperate to do the training. And I would say, well, you know, I'm, uh, I don't have the technology set up right now. I'm in the process of a move, but I could schedule you for, you know, next March or something like that. And so, uh, then some of them would say, well, here in my town, uh, downtown, there's like ABC biofeedback on the corner. Uh, and they offer brainwave training. Do you, suggest I go there to kind of like get a warm up until I can come with you and do the real thing. And I said actually no I don't recommend that and here's why. I said have you heard of penicillin resistant gonorrhea? And they kind of like, well what are you talking about sexually transmitted disease for? I go, well I'm I'm wanting to make a point. And I, and they say, well yeah I have heard of it. And I said, do you know how it came about? It was kind of like a medical mystery where did penicillin resistant gonorrhea come from? And they say, no. So then I tell them the story. It used to be that the U.S. military had military bases in the Philippines, tens of thousands of soldiers and sailors and airmen uh, on these bases. Well, you have uh, tens of thousands of horny young men. And uh, so what's called into action are prostitutes, both male and female prostitutes. And uh, the Philippine medical system uh, leaks. And so it's very easy for non-prescription access to powerful antibiotics. And so the Philippine prostitutes, according to the research, were able to get their hands on penicillin, and they gave themselves every day small doses. Well, as any microbiologist knows, that's a perfect way to develop an antibiotic-resistant strain, is to give large members of the population <clears throat> small Uh, non-lethal doses of the antibiotic and i go okay now what's the comparison to the brainwave training well the ego is like the gonorrhea and if you go to down on the corner abc uh, biocybernaut i mean abc biofeedback and they don't have the biocybernaut methods and they don't have the biocybernaut coaching and they don't have the biocybernaut technology you're going to get a sub-critical Dose of information about uh, how the ego works and what the ego does is it learns how to resist the information of uh, brainwave feedback done right, and so I would tell them the story and I'd say, well, now you have two choices: you can either wait to come to biofeedback, you know, from your family, your friends, the power of the biofeedback, or. You can, and against my recommendation, go to ABC Biofeedback down on the corner and get a subcritical dose of feedback, which will simply teach your ego how to resist the information that comes through properly developed and delivered uh, brainwave feedback training. Mm -hmm. And so I had people do it both ways. Some people would wait and they would thrive in their bio training. Others couldn't wait and they went to ABC Biofeedback and they would come in and their egos would be like these people in Silicon Valley that you're talking about spiritual egos and they would be primed to resist the coaching and the methods in a way that was uh, not ever seen in people who hadn't taken these subcritical uh, uh doses of uh brainwave feedback training and so uh oftentimes when uh, people do psychedelics uh They don't have coaching and they don't, and and, and one of the big themes, as you know personally from having done bio training, the ego is identified as the adversary and the weapons, the tools that it uses, the hindrances are explained in great detail and you are trained to recognize when a thought starts to open in your mind, it's like an email that contains a virus. The servers will always delete those emails before it comes to your computer. Well, when a thought starts to open your mind that has one of the hindrances in it, you're trained to delete that thought so it doesn't open, doesn't take over your awareness. And so you can go and do psychedelics, but if not done with the appropriate guidance, you run the risk of developing an inflated uh, ego that will then more effectively block any personal growth, spiritual growth, or expansion of consciousness that you are really seeking.
1: Mm-hmm. So, is there well, two a two part question? How do you distinguish what's you and what's your ego? Um, and is it possible to kill your ego? Because a, a thing that you hear a lot is it of times is what? I missed the word to to kill your ego. Because the thing no. that I hear a lot is no. ego <laughs> death, and
0: uh,
1: that's confusing to me.
0: Well. Uh, I I remember telling you about this multimillionaire oil man that brought me to India. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. He was away with the film crew at a rat temple in Northern India filming when I got there. So the first five days I was alone uh, in Bombay in the Mm -hmm. Oberoi hotel, then owned by the King of Nepal, setting up the equipment and so on. And when he came back, he walked into the room and he thumped his chest. He goes, I killed my ego. (laughs) Oh, boy, this is going to be a long journey. (laughs) And he was a multiple uh, personality, some raging, angry drunks, others, you know, kind, charitable, philanthropic. Uh, And sometimes I had to wait like three days for somebody to show up that I could talk to. Uh, But yeah, Ramda said, as long as you have a body, you have an ego. Now, it might be big and obtrusive and get on people, or it can be subtle and evanescent and rarely in evidence, but it's always there and you cannot kill it. The only mm. time it disintegrates is when you drop your body. And so that's not you know a very effective way, but you can diminish it. You can learn how to discipline and you can learn how to recognize its efforts to undermine your personal growth methods or even your happiness by memorizing the five hindrances. One of the drawings that I often hand drawings that I make to show people, I draw a little face and I draw a big screen and I say, this is you. And this is the screen of your reality, the, the sounds and the I- images and the smells. and It all comes to you from this, from the screen of reality. And then over on the side, I draw a bootleg projector, one of those old tripods, you know, old you know, projectors. And I say, this is ego, which makes up movies and projects them onto the screen of your reality. And and if you haven't been trained to recognize a perception based on the hindrances, you will take in the false images that the ego projects into your reality and you'll accept them as real and then, you know, go down the path to destruction or, you know, inhibition of uh, your skills, your talents, your abilities. And so recognizing, well, let me give you a story. Um, At one point, uh, I had built, uh, I was asked by a a wealthy family to put a training center on their estate in uh, St. Charles, Illinois. And I was there from May through November, trained all the family members. It was a family-owned company and uh, many wonderful stories of how people benefited from that. Uh, But one of the trainings there was uh, three guys. Um, and uh, uh, two of them were cousins. Another was a a creative director of a a creative company. And they all uh, evoked their higher self to help them in their forgiveness work. This was before we had the 14-step method. Uh, And so uh, when they were dealing with a problem in forgiveness, they would call on their higher self. For two of them, it was a tall, robed, bearded, very stately, almost saintly-looking character, and for the third person, it was a radiant child. And he'd be having problems with the forgiveness. He'd call on the radiant child. It would come in, smiling and radiating good energy. And it would give him advice that was kind, loving, and always effective in doing the forgiveness. Okay, so that went on for several days. He's doing great. And then he's had a problem forgiving. He calls on the radiant child. It comes in. It's exactly like it always did. And he gives him advice that's vicious, mean-spirited, and cruel. And so immediately he grabs it by the neck, puts one hand on the head and pops the head off and inside is Tasmania, the cartoon character mm-hmm. the Tasmanian devil that runs around like that, bringing, you know, bad vibes uh, everywhere he goes. And so why did he do that? Well, he recognized that where the radiant child was giving him advice it was kind, gentle, loving and effective. Now it was giving him advice That was vicious, mean-spirited, and cruel. And he recognized that the ego had gotten up in drag to impersonate the one that he was taking advice from. And so ego will do that. It has the ability to corrupt your uh, perceptions. And so uh, you need to be on guard. This is why you need, uh, in your uh, toolkit, in your quiver, you need the arrows where you know what the hindrances are, doubt, drowsiness distractibility and worry, which includes all form of fear, aversion, any form of ill will, uh, boredom. And then the one I added, which is forgetfulness. And so when a thought starts to open in your mind, you run the scan on it. Does this contain a hindrance or two or three? If so, you delete that thought saying, thank you. I don't need to think that way anymore. And so one of the signers of the American Declaration of Independence wrote famously, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. So you need to constantly monitor because ego has only one objective, control you. And it is not going to take a day off where you can like not worry about it. And so you constantly need to monitor your perceptions. It becomes automatic after a while. Uh, But then, you know, if once every two weeks a bad thought comes up, you go, Oh, I see you ego. That's the, and you name the hindrance and you dismiss the ego, Mm -hmm. but you need to be, Eternally vigilant in order to have the liberty of higher consciousness.
1: Have you heard of um, the ego eradicator breathwork? It's similar, it uh, incorporates a Kundalini breathwork. I just thought it popped up on my newsfeed today, and I was, I had to ask you if it was something you were familiar with. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not. So it, it was uh, Russell Brand that did a little tutorial on Twitter today about it, and he was saying that. Um, you put your, your thumbs out like this, you focus on like your third eye brow spot and you keep your arms kind of wide at a Y and you do like, Oh, I'm going to, it's one minute in through your nose and really fast, almost like hyperventilating breaths. And then out through your mouth in the same way. And then you have to hold it and imagine roots kind of going down into the, into the earth, and you hold it for as long as you can, and then at the end you make this very big exhale, and it's supposed to help specifically with the ego. So I was curious, yeah, if you if you practice that, I was like, it's perfect timing for my podcast.
0: Well, I um, when I got back from my breakthrough experience in Joe Camilla's lab, um, I wanted to tell people about it. It was like the most amazing thing that ever happened to me in my whole life and in my senior year at Carnegie Institute of Technology senior year in physics I had set up an exchange program between the psych department at Duquesne University where they had French Jesuit priests teaching phenomenology a science of consciousness uh science of experience and our department which was largely rat runners and uh so I had met a professor there, Dr. Rolf von Eckertzberg. Now, Rolf had been a grad student at Harvard under Timothy Leary, and he had taken tons of LSD. He'd lived at the community at Millbrook and taken tons of LSD. He met his wife. Their three children were all conceived on LSD, conscious creation. <laughs> and so whatever Rolf was doing, what, like giving a class, what he's really doing is witnessing himself studying the processes of his consciousness as it changes, as he does whatever it does. And that could be giving a class, making love with his wife, canoeing down a river with his children. He was always studying his awareness. And so uh I go, Well, if anybody's gonna know what happened to me, it's gonna be Rolf. And so he had a house, a rented house, one of the robber baron era houses in Pittsburgh, so big that the top floor had maid's quarters for a dozen maids. I mean, this was a vast house and he was renting it. So I wow. walk up the hill, it's right off campus. And I walk in, uh, into his big stu- study, and he looks at me and he sees that I'm different. And he goes, like, sit down. And he takes his left arm and he sweeps everything off the desk onto a floor, mm-hmm. folds his hands and he says, okay, now tell me what's happened to you. So I spend the next maybe two and a half or three hours detailing everything that happened to me in Joe Camilla's lab. Partway through this talk, a neighbor lady comes in stands respectfully in the distance for a while listening, then leaves, and then a little while later, she comes back with a book, and she walks over to my side of the desk, puts the book down, and then leaves. And I continue the conversation with Rolf. At the end, I look at the book, it's the autobiography of a yogi by Yogananda, which two weeks earlier, I would have... (laughs) This is just nonsense. Look at it. It's crazy things he's talking about. But now I read it. I shared it with my roommate, who was a grad student at Duquesne studying phenomenology. He ordered the correspondence lessons from the Self-Realization Fellowship. And together, for some years, he and I did the Yogananda lessons. We were both initiated into Kriya Yoga by one of Yogananda's direct disciples, Swami Kriyananda, at the Ananda Cooperative Village in Grass Valley, California. And so I was deeply imbued uh, with this uh, tradition. And so Yogananda, speaking of breathing, uh, says that uh, you should never even try to meditate unless you do these breathing exercises. Uh, the first breathing exercise we did for, I don't know, a couple of years. And then there was a second more advanced one that would come along called the Hong Sa method. And uh, when I was in India, I talked to yogi teachers who said they don't teach people meditation for two years and the first thing they do for two years is they teach them breathing practices. So I'm mm-hmm. very aware of and respectful of the power of breathing. Now it turns out in the bio-cybernaut uh, chamber, oftentimes there are certain states of consciousness where it's like an awareness larger than the person comes in and it breathes them. It causes them to breathe in certain ways that advance their, their consciousness. But there are also breathing practices and, uh, we will be introducing some of these soon into the training in fact there'll be a special trainings that will feature certain breathing exercises we have already years ago built into the uh, cybernaut program that runs everything a pre training and a post training meditation period during which there will be some special breathing practices coming soon to the bio center near you so I'm 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 beyond excited and delighted about the power of breath Um, and as an auxiliary as an aid to the more powerful uh, alpha feedback process. I 100% endorse it. Mm -hmm. But somebody who says that it's an ego eradicator, uh, uh, the uh, people who say that they have an ego eradicator, I say, um, "Mm, I think you're exaggerating. You can (laughs) diminish it, which is the goal, of course. But eradication, as long as you have a body, you have an ego.
1: Now, is there an evolutionary purpose to that or a spiritual purpose? And is it only humans that have an ego? Uh,
0: that's a why question. Why do we have an ego? Uh, I found at uh it's far more productive to learn how to diminish the influence of the ego, how to minimize it then to ask like, well, why do we have one? I think, you Mm. know, uh, asking God would probably be a better way than asking me.
1: (laughs) That's fair enough.
0: (laughs) But I can tell Um, you, I can tell you how to diminish it and live a better life as a result.
1: Yeah. Go to alpha one training, start Mm -hmm. with alpha one training. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of end on the note of global consciousness Mm -hmm. Um, and what we talked about a little bit earlier was, let me see if I I had it and then was the, um, the yugas and like like global cycles, things like of that nature. So if we are in what they call a Kali Yuga, which is a state of chaos, or with numerology, a lot of new numerologists are saying we're in a nine, which is closing out a lot of unfinished business. It can be very chaotic. It forces you to look at some ugly truths in order to evolve. And hopefully, I think the end goal for both of those thoughts are to end in this golden age, which is something that you actively try to participate in and usher in, and that's part of your mission statement for where BioCybernaut. So, For all of these people that are having a very hard time with 2020 and 2021, do you have any, I guess, small steps that we can take to collectively head into this golden age?
0: Mindfulness. Um, within even the worst chaos, with the appropriate consciousness, you can thrive. Uh, Drunvlo told a story about, he was actually um, in Peru uh, visiting uh, Inca uh, temples, and there was a group of Japanese uh, on tour, and he met this man who was held in almost godlike reverence by all the other people, and uh, he connected with the guy and they interacted, uh, uh, even though the guy didn't know any English and Junvo, didn't know any Japanese, they interacted profoundly and deeply for some hours. Later, uh, people uh, in the group took him aside and said, well, do you know who that is? And he goes, no, and he, here was the guy's story. And this, and this is a story about depending on your consciousness, you can thrive in chaos. He was in uh, Hiroshima when the nuclear bomb went off. And he saw the flash, and he saw this wave of destruction coming toward him, and he sat down, and he said, this will not affect me. The next day, when rescue workers were going through the ruins, they found this guy sitting naked, sitting naked there. All his clothes had been incinerated, burned off and blown away, and he was completely intact completely intact. Uh, he was obviously uh, revered as a, a national treasure uh, in Japan, uh, but it's an example uh, of how it doesn't matter what's going on. A nuclear bomb is going off. Uh, you know, you're going into, you know, a dark age, uh, a dictatorship and censorship have taken over the land and freedom of speech has been extinguished. And, you know, people are being put in jail for, you know, not having the right attitudes. Not enough mm-hmm. social credit, uh, like in China, uh, mm-hmm. and this doesn't have to affect you. Uh, and uh, so the the idea is that uh, how not to lose your head when everyone around you is losing theirs, and it's a matter of uh, sufficiently high consciousness. The the guy who survived the Hiroshima nuclear bomb blast is an example. He's a human being. His heart pumps. Uh, you know, blood goes through his body as brain waves. And uh, I never got to see his brain waves, but, uh, you know, he was an ordinary Japanese man mm-hmm. with extraordinary abilities. And so uh, the important thing to do is to uh, be responsible for improvements that you can be responsible for. You may not be able to stop the person over there who wants to, you know, put all the people he doesn't like in jail um or censor people so they can't say anything he doesn't like uh but what you can do is you can develop your own consciousness you might remember that you and I had an encounter where recently where something uh, went wrong uh with the technology and uh instead of being instead of being disappointed i said you know that was really a good thing and this is why it was a good thing
1: <laughs> and so
0: uh do you remember yeah. yeah, and it so, made me
1: feel a lot better. I'm like, you can choose how you feel about this situation. Exactly,
0: You always have that power. And uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, one of my dear friends had a, a quote uh, that indicated that um, sorrow follows a negative thought. Uh, uh, having, you know, we think bad, we become what we think. Whereas, uh, you know, happiness and joy follows uh, a positive thought. And so we're talking about more than thoughts, we're talking about the brainwaves that underlie both thoughts and emotions. And uh, when you can run those positive brainwaves, uh, you can feel better, and even more importantly, because emotions are even below beliefs. You can have healthy beliefs, but even above that, you can have a wonderful identity, which in the having of which will alter your reality. And what a nice skill to have.
1: It's so beautiful. And it makes me think of the example you gave earlier on, which was the small, or I shouldn't even say small, but the the profound changes that you do see with the training and how that has um, a proteogen effect on people around you. So even by ad- adopting this this small first step of mindfulness that that can also have a ripple effect and instead of living in this age of chaos or this um this nine cycle or this kali yuga that we could actually go into this golden age and hopefully a lot faster than what what, what wikipedia is saying
0: well as you mentioned that's part of the uh mission statement of our seven fully it's mm-hmm. to reduce suffering to expand awareness and to usher in an enduring golden age for all humanity. And we know Mm -hmm. that by changing our brainwaves, we can change our identity and we can change the reality and bring this in. And so it's within our grasp. We have the means uh, to do this now regarding mindfulness. uh, Mindfulness is a globally, a multi-billion dollar industry. People in all walks of life have, have become interested in mindfulness I've actually written a paper on this, which is available to everyone for free online. It's in the o- British online journal, EC, Psychology and Psychiatry. That's E is in Edward, C is in Charlie, EC, Psychology and Psychiatry. And uh, you can go and search there. And there's uh, uh, an article entitled The Quest for Mindfulness. And you can learn a lot about what you can do on your own there.
1: Wonderful stuff. So thank you so much for giving me so much of your time, being very generous with all of these technical issues we had earlier on. Do you want to tell the listeners um, where they can find more of your work and learn more about BioCybernaut?
0: Sure. Uh, The website, www.biocybernaut.com, will take you on quite an odyssey, quite an adventure, uh, you can sign up for trainings. There's a publication section where there's a lot of papers, some of them for the lay audience, some of them more technical and scientific, that you can read to discover the science behind the powerful effects that we have. There's also various forums that you can participate. There's a, a, um, an alumni uh, section of the website that all the graduates can gather in, and we talk there about you know, issues uh, and problems and solutions. Um, you could also uh, get a copy of my book on Amazon. Uh, it's called The Art of Smart Thinking. And uh, when it was introduced, it actually rose to number three on Amazon for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very cool. And when it dropped yeah. off, off of that, it was number one in the subcategory of memory improvement for many months. The Art of Smart Thinking by Dr. James Hart on Amazon.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And then I'll I'll record an intro after this. But um, just to reiterate to the listeners, we do have three autographed copies that we will be giving away. Um, so you could win your very own copy of this book signed by the one and only Dr. Hart. So again, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to see you again, talk to you again. And I really appreciate you.
0: It's been a delight hanging out with you. Really appreciate you and your wonderful deep and thoughtful provoking, and miracle-exposing questions.
1: Well, thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. That's it for this week's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can also share this podcast with a friend. It helps my podcast grow, and I really appreciate it. I hope to see you next week.